This summer, we've hosted a three-part book discussion series here at UUCF on reading for resistance and resilience. We've had excellent attendance and discussions of the first two parts on George Orwell's 1984 and Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. And I hope that those of you who were able will join us about 10 or 15 minutes after the end of this service right here in the sanctuary for our concluding discussion on Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Talents. You're welcome to join us whether you've read or finished the book or not. It's right there in that middle section. There's about 100 pages that are pretty bleak. So uh, I understand if some of you are, are still struggling to get through it. it. It is worth it, though. When I first mentioned the idea of a series on dystopian fiction to my wife, Megan, who's an English professor at Frederick Community College, she was intrigued, but she also cautioned that that might be the most depressing list of beach reading that I've ever heard of. Uh, I appreciate those who have persevered with me. In retrospect, it seems clear to me that hosting these three congregational conversations on dystopian fiction was a good decision because of the fruit that's come of the conversations. To quote the contemporary author Ben Winter about the potential insights that can come from reading and discussing fiction, after all, fiction is not true, right? What, what could, use could there be in that? He writes that fiction has the power to clarify, to galvanize, to prophesy, and to warn. Fiction allows us to take big-picture questions, big issues, big moral and sociopolitical changes and see how they might play out in real people's lives with real individuals. So on this final Sunday before Labor Day, I'd like to invite us to reflect on some highlights from this series on reading for resistance and resilience. But before I plunge in fully, a caveat might be in order. In these trying times in our nation's history, allow me to be clear that my intent is not to be unduly political, politically partisan. My motivation for this summer series, for the poem that I shared earlier, is not about resisting a political party or supporting another. It's about wrestling with uh, novels, at least for the series, that show us the, what the present and the future can look like if we allow our democratic and constitutional norms to be undermined. That's not okay. No matter who is doing it, it must be renounced. And that's very much at the heart of our Unitarian Universalist living tradition in which our fifth principle is the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. That being said, when we describe Unitarian Universalism as a liberal religious movement, it's a reference, again, not to a political party, but to a much older philosophical tradition of big L liberalism from the Latin root liber, meaning free. At the heart of Unitarian Universalism is the freedom for individuals to freely choose for themselves based on the dictates of their conscience, what they believe, how they feel led to act. We seek to be liberal in the best sense of that word, open to new ideas, generous, open-handed, open-hearted, open-minded. And that means there's room in this big tent of Unitarian Universalism for those who are conservative in the best sense of that word, caring about the conservation of nature, upholding the beauty of traditions and rituals that have accrued meaning through the test of time, reminding us of the importance of individual responsibility, of community, authority, sanctity, loyalty. On the other side of that coin is that there are morally repugnant points of view, anti-Semitism, 
racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, I could continue, that are beyond the pale of the big tent of Unitarian Universalism. And our summer book discussion series has been precisely about that. Methods of resistance and the resilience in the face of movements that are anti-democratic, that are authoritarian, and that are opposed to the freedom, diversity, and tolerance that are core values of an open society. Now, those of you who have been part of one or both of the previous two discussions know there is a lot to say about both of these novels. But I'll limit myself now to only one highlight from each before moving on to the third Our central discussion question for George Orwell's 1984 was how is resistance and resilience cultivated in response to gaslighting, Big Brother, and the Thought Police? Gaslighting is an attempt to make someone question their own sanity by telling them that they are wrong despite all evidence to the contrary. It's a form of lying that is particularly psychologically abusive and psychologically manipulative. One of the ways this dynamic plays out in Orwell's 1984 world of alternative facts is through the structure of a totalitarian regime in which the ministry of truth produces propaganda. The ministry of peace wages war. The ministry of love impresses and imprisons dissidents. It's going to hurt me more than it hurts you, right? No, it's really not, actually. That's gaslighting. The regime's gaslighting slogan is that war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Along these lines, the single quote that has stuck with me most from our study of Orwell's 1984 is the following. The heresy of heresies is common sense. The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final and most essential command. Here's the twist. In the end, these books are not about hopelessness and despair. They are are cautionary tales, but they are also written to expose paths of resistance and resilience. If we read Orwell's 1984 against the grain, we can begin to see that if the party's final and most essential command is to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears, then we should redouble our efforts to do precisely the opposite. Don't believe the dictator's propaganda about fake news and against science. Trust the evidence of your eyes and ears. Believe what the overwhelming consensus of scientists are telling you. Our second book was Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. If you haven't watched, how many of you watched the television series on Hulu? Okay, quite a few. If you haven't, uh, I do recommend it. As you may know, it stars Elizabeth Moss, who also played Peggy Olsen on Mad Men. Going way back, some of you will recall, she also played Zoe Bartlett on The West Wing. So it's sort of interesting watching The Handmaid's Tale. It's like, don't do that to Peggy and Zoe, right? (laughs) Like, uh... Uh, it's, it's not an easy watch, but it is powerful and it is ultimately hopeful. Our central discussion question for Atwood's classic novel was, can the lens of patriarchy and feminism inform and empower movements of resistance and resilience? I'm probably most haunted by Atwood's own words about why she wrote this book. She said, it is an imagined account of what happens when not uncommon pronouncements about women are taken to their logical conclusion. 
From the novel itself, the line that has stuck with me the most is from the protagonist Offred's observation about Serena Joy, the wife of the couple who holds her captive. Serena's character is based on real-life figures like the late Philip Schlafly, who during the movement to pass the Equal Rights Amendment made an incredibly ironic argument in public as a woman that women should not participate in public life outside of the home. In the book, Offred thinks to herself, how furious, how furious she must be now that she's been taken at her word. Again, reading against the grain, we can see the vital importance of denouncing sexism and of helping build a world of gender equity. And if there were but world enough and time, there are many other relevant dystopian, all too relevant uh, dystopian novels that we could read and discuss. If you want to continue some on your own into the fall, other top contenders I considered were Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, Robert Graves' I, Claudius, Starhawk's The Fifth Sacred Thing. Related to the upcoming class on bioethics that I'll be teaching this fall, arguably the single best supplemental novel that you could read about the coming bioethics and how it might shape our society is, um, is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Very much worth revisiting. But in preparing for the third and final segment of our summer series, I was interested to see last month that the New Yorker joined a growing chorus of voices that declared, declaring that in the ongoing contest over which dystopian classic is most applicable to our time, you know, a really kind of troubling contest that we're having right now, the New Yorker declared that Octavia Butler's parable books may be unmatched. This sentiment is echoed in the central discussion question that will frame our congregational conversation this afternoon about Octavia Butler's Parable of the Talents. What lessons might we learn from a novel published in 1998, almost 20 years ago, in which a populist authoritarian zealot is elected president of the United States with the campaign slogan, Make America Great Again? The New Yorker calls her book prescient. Uh, tragically, Butler is unable to speak from herself. She died in 2006 from a fall near her age at the far too young an age of 58. But she's on the record in a brilliant speech at MIT from around the time that Parable of the Talents was published saying, this is not intended to be a book of prophecy. This is an if-this-goes-on story. This is a cautionary tale, although people have told me it was prophecy, she said. She concludes... All I have to say is, I certainly hope not. When Butler calls her novel an if-this-goes-on story, she's explicitly referencing um, the trends of the Reagan era, that's what, or error, E-R-R-O-R, depending on uh, how you think, uh, which for her were greed and selfishness, warmongering, race-baiting, and skepticism towards science. She was writing this book, If This Goes On, This Is the Sort of World That That Will Result In. I should hasten to add, however, that Butler was interested not only in dystopian cautionary tales, but also in the promise of the utopian imagination. In order to build a better world, we have to dream what it might be like. And Octavia Butler is a fascinating example of someone who lived deeply in the tension between dystopian realism and utopian hope. To explore some of what we might learn from her writings and worldview, let me tell you just a little bit about her life. Have any of you read Kindred by Butler? That's probably her most well-known work. A few of you, Lilith's Brood, 
All right, a few more hands. Uh, the parable series. How many of you have read one or both of the... Okay, good. Uh, and she's written many other things. She was born in 1947 in Pasadena, California. She was only a toddler when her father died and was raised primarily by her grandmother and her mother, who was a house cleaner. Butler confesses to sometimes feeling ashamed of her mother when, and what her mother did for a living when she was a child. But she grew to see her mother quite differently. She said, I came to see that unlike my mother, I didn't have to leave school when I was 10. I never missed a meal, and I always had a roof over my head because my mother was willing to do demeaning work for me. Indeed, commentators have noted that many of Butler's most beloved heroines would be women quite like her mother, women who struggled and compromised not because they were frightened or timid or cowards, but who made the best of no-win situations because they were heroes. And although her mother did not understand her daughter's aspiration to be a professional writer, she nevertheless scraped together the money to buy Octavia her first typewriter and to fund her trip to her first science fiction writers conference. And although Butler wrote stories from a very young age, her call to write science fiction came when she was 12 years old and she saw a pretty mediocre film on TV titled Devil Girl from Mars. That's the title of that speech that she gave at MIT. She said, as I was watching this film, I had a series of powerful revelations. The first was, geez, I can write a better story than that. <laughs> and then I thought, geez, anybody can write a better story than that. <laughs> My third thought was the clincher. Somebody got paid to write that story. <laughs> so I was off and writing, and a year later, I was busy submitting terrible pieces of fiction to innocent magazines. But it was a long journey from being a young African-American girl in the racially segregated 1950s dreaming of being a professional writer to winning the MacArthur, MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant almost four decades later in 1995. As you can perhaps guess, she was given some pretty racist advice along the way. Uh, but it's powerful to witness how she persevered in bringing her experience of being both black and a woman um, to a science fiction field that at the time was almost exclusively dominated by white men telling stories about white people and aliens who were often dark-skinned. We can talk about that. When she was told that race was an unwelcome topic and a genre allegedly best suited for escapism, she asked, well, what about Star Wars, for example, just to pick the first thing off the top of her mind? She said, violence, kidnapping, planetary destruction, that's just all in good fun, but the sight of a minority person is too heavy and too real for you? Her best-known novel is Kindred, which turns on the idea that time travel can be a very different prospect for a person of color who may find themselves going back in time to an even worse time legally, a time of enslavement and more. Uh, there's also some interesting things to parallel around how white men have often told storylines about time travel being sure not to disturb the timeline as if things have always gone so great. Uh, that might look differently um, for a person of color. Some of you may have seen the news that director Ava DuVernay, known for directing Selma a few years ago, the powerful documentary 13th on Netflix, the upcoming A Wrinkle in Time, has signed on to adapt for TV the first part of what may be Butler's best work, her Lilith's Brood trilogy. 
These novels tell the story of a black woman named Lilith who 250 years after humanity nearly incinerates itself in a nuclear war, works with aliens to restart the human race, primarily by interbreeding with aliens. As you might expect, other humans don't all take up take up on the idea as quickly as Lilith, and therein the tale begins. Now, why does all this matter beyond entertainment? Butler once wrote in a nonfiction essay about her chosen genre of science fiction that we write about aliens because we can't stop creating them out of each other. We want aliens to be real so that we're not alone in a universe that cares no more for us than it does for stones or suns or other fragments of itself. And yet we are unable along with the, to get along with those aliens who are closest to us, those aliens who are, of course, ourselves. And part of what makes Butler's writing so compelling and challenging is that she does not write naive, utopian dreams. Her experiences as a woman in a sexist society, as a black person in a racist society, deeply inform her speculations about what the future might hold. In her words, I don't write utopian science fiction because I don't believe imperfect human beings can form a perfect society. In the congregational conversation uh, later on this morning, we'll explore some of the specifics of the Earthseed communities that Butler's characters dreamed about in response to the rising political authoritarianism and religious fundamentalism in their time. And in the notes that we have from her estate about the sequels to those two books that she never had a chance to write, we'll consider the twists and turns of how those utopian dreams might have played out. Butler speculated that we humans might only choose, finally choose solidarity across our differences in the face of extreme adversity. In a similar vein, while reflecting on the science uh, fiction of Octavia Butler, I was reminded that we recently passed the 50th anniversary of a sermon from another dreamer, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Fifty years ago, last Wednesday, Dr. King delivered his famous sermon, later published as Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? Some of our current leaders seem to only know how to lead us into chaos. But Dr. King, Octavia Butler, and so many other progressives call us in a different direction toward beloved community. Within our spheres of influence, may we each do our part, individually and collectively, to turn our dreams of beloved community into deeds.